Well, good morning to all of you. If you don't know who I am, my name is Rob Pfeiffer, and I'm on the pastoral team here at Forks Church. I oversee our uh, our youth ministry, our family ministry as a whole, and uh, I'm really thankful that I can be with you this morning. Uh, I'm typically teaching our our youth, our young ones, uh, preaching them the word. But when I get a chance to be with our church family, I count it as an honor, I count it as a blessing uh, to be with you. And so I just want to thank you. As we go through our, our passage this morning, what we are doing is we're winding down the book of 1 Peter. We're winding down what I think is a very applicable book, a very timely word for us in the season that we're in. And I can't help but to think that these final words from Peter in this letter are even more powerful than how they began and how what, how he, what he is saying to us. Because what he is doing is he's calling us to our response to what he is teaching us. I don't know if you're like me, being the season that we're in, there's a lot of time on our hands that we have not had before. And maybe you have spent that time trying to uh, be outside more. Maybe you've tried to do work around the house more, be with family that you haven't seen more. Well, one of the things that I've done is I've, sad to say, is I've watched more TV. Um, Maybe you're like me. Now, one of the shows that I have enjoyed, along with my wife, Shannon, is this show called Alone. And we are late to the party. This show has been around for a while, but we uh, began watching it not too long ago and uh, actually finished up the season or the whole series last night. We actually began it yesterday, so we binged one. No, we didn't do that. No, we <laughs> it's tempting. It is. You know how it is. But here's the thing. If you're not familiar with the, the, the show itself, it's basically it's a reality show. The contestants that are part of the game is that they go to the wilderness and they live alone, surviving, seeking out food, seeking out shelter, seeking out water, all the things that are needed to live and survive. There is no cameras with them, no camera crew, only the cameras that they take themselves and they have to film themselves the entire time that they are in the wilderness. It's fascinating. It's fascinating because, of course, as I'm watching it, there's part of me that says, I could do this. I look at my wife, Shannon, and she's like, no, you can't. So very humbling in that regard. But at the same time, it's been fascinating to watch the show unfold with all the different contestants, all the different people, and what takes place. Now look, there are some contestants that show up, and on the very first day, they're tapping out. They're like, no, no. Like three hours into their adventure, they're tapping out. I do say to Shannon, now I wouldn't do that. All right, now keep that in mind. But at the same time, you, you start to see different approaches and different fears that take place within the, the contestants. Some that tap out the next day after living a life in the wilderness for the first time, having to navigate the reality of black bears and predators and cougars. I'd probably tap out as well. But what I wanted to call us to is just something I have observed throughout the show, is that those who tend to win win are those who make a connection to the following. They quickly realize that in order to, in order to get through what is ahead of them, they, they can't just simply survive. All right? They can't just simply look at what's around them and try just to make it through. 
what they quickly realize is that they have to learn how to thrive. And the way that they typically learn how to do this is they learn how to live in the environment that surrounds them. Not just to survive for a little while, not just to hope it ends soon, but they learn how to adapt. They learn how to thrive. You see, the survivor mentality, it's, it's, it's short-term. And as I've watched this show, I see how it tends to create a limited view of the environment and the limits And it limits awareness of the opportunities and the means that are available to the contestants for long-term thriving. And one thing that has come to mind as I've I've seen this, I've seen human nature take hold, is, is, is this truth, is that our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. As I've watched the contestants try to survive and, and, and find food, and then everything around them is limited just finding food, they quickly realize how fragile they are. They quickly realize that, that every day that they have food and their life back home is, is a gift. It's, it's a grace. Our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. Now, obviously, throughout the show, I see a lot of fears well up. And I can't help but to think about the season that we're in now, the season that we have been since back in March when we saw society take a big turn as we knew it. And we're having to live through that now. You know, I thought about the fears that I've, I've had over this past season. And if you're like me, there's two fears that tend to come to the surface for me. One is this. One is a fear of losing a way of life. Losing a way of life that I'm used to. Not necessarily when it comes to to money or or belongings, but a way of life that involves my friends, my community, my family. The things that I enjoy. Even the country that I live in. My fears go to these places of losing a way of life. But also a fear of losing one's life, losing my life, seeing family have to die, seeing friends die. But I have to remind myself, how do I respond? How do I respond to the fears that, that, that creep in? And I think the reality that we have to understand is, is, is just what I said before, the reality of the fact that our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. You see, for the Christian, for the Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, what this season continues to be is a test of knowing, believing, and living out our deepest need, and that is Jesus Christ. And the test that the fruit of what we believe, what we do, what we seek to do, that it truly lines up with the hope in Christ that we proclaim to have. The other thing I've learned is that letting my mind reside within the fears that I've mentioned, what it tends to do is it tends to push me towards the survivor mentality that I mentioned earlier. Wanting to control, wanting to to fix, wanting to speak loudly against Get other people on my side. Can you relate to that? 
One thing I've learned, too, is that the survivor mentality that I'm speaking of, it, it tends to isolate me from God. It tends to isolate me from the community that God has called me to. And it pulls me away from thriving and flourishing to a life that is, on, that is meant to be on mission for the gospel. So we're at this, this thought again. Our deepest needs drive us to our deepest beliefs. And we have, to, we have to, under the truth of God's word, be evaluating that constantly. We so easily deceive ourselves as to what our deepest needs are. But maybe we have, maybe we have that in line with God's word, that our, our deepest need is for the grace of God, for Christ. But maybe our beliefs in how to achieve that, how to run after that, are off. Or the other way around. And so you can see how easy it is to, to get off track, to lose sight of what we are called to be and do as believers in Christ. And so as we've been through this book in First Peter, we see that Peter is, is making the point for us, defining our, our deepest needs and what our deepest beliefs should be. Peter makes the point that for us, the greatest need humankind has is the saving grace of God, which should drive us to our deepest belief that it is only God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who can save us from his just wrath against our sin. That is our deepest need, to be saved. And the belief that needs to line up with this, that it is only God, it is only his saving work through Christ that we have to have faith in in order to thrive. Now, I believe that you know, today's passage, it's a great summation of this truth, of what our greatest need is, our deepest need and our deepest belief should be. It's a great summation of this. But it's also a summation of, of, of two attitudes that Peter has been describing and exhorting his readers to throughout this letter. Two attitudes. On, on, on one hand, the attitude is humility toward others. On the other hand, the attitude is a bold, a bold resistance to evil. And, and these attitudes, they are, they are fundamental for Christian living in this present world. And they are by no means contradictory because Jesus himself has lived this before us. And what we have before us is an instruction from Peter on what it truly means to, to follow Jesus and do what he says, to take up our cross and follow him. And so today, what I want us to hear the call that is, is taken from the title of our sermon today. It's, the title of the sermon is Standing Firm in the Grace of God. Standing Firm in the Grace of God. And in verse 12 of the passage, of today's passage, we, we see Peter himself. He sums, up in his, he sums up his entire letter by stating this. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's a great summary. And you see, this is the call to us from God's word. The call to us is to stand firm. 
And as we go through this passage, we, we, we find that there are, there are three ways that, that Peter is calling us to stand firm. We stand firm by humbling ourselves under God. We stand firm by resisting temptation and suffering together. And we stand firm by believing God's promises. So our first point here, we stand firm by humbling ourselves under God in verses 6 through 7. I think it's important to remember back in verse 5. In verse 5 where Peter says this, Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. And what? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, the humility, the humility that serves others, and what Peter is calling us to, the humility to do this is found. It's found at the throne of God's grace. God opposes the proud. This is taught to us in Proverbs 3.34 as well. Not only because pride despises our fellow brothers and sisters, but because pride, ultimately, what it is doing, it is rebelling against God. You see, the proud person sets himself against God. And God, in turn, sets himself against the proud. But in contrast to this, in contrast to this, we see here in God's word that God lifts up those who cast themselves utterly upon his grace. He lifts us up. And so I, I want to talk about what does it mean to humble? What is, what, is, what is Peter saying here as it relates to humbling ourselves? But in order, in order to do that, can I just take us down a little path here of, of reminding ourselves what grace is? What is, what is grace? What, what is Peter referring to that this is the true grace of God? What is he referring to when he says stand firm in this? So what is grace? I've recently read a book. It's called Grace and Practice, uh, Grace and Practice, A Theology of Everyday Life. It's by Paul Zoll. And I found that his definition of grace was, was profound to me. And it's, it's so spot on. And it's one that I had never heard before. And let me read to you real quick out of his book. He says this about grace. What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. And he goes on to say, let's go a little further. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, that one who loves, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is love, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. His simple definition is this. Grace is one-way love. He goes on to say, theologically speaking, he refers to Romans 5.8, where Paul says, God proves his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has all to do with God. It has all to do with God. Reminded of in Ephesians. In chapter 2, where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. How often do I find myself in the survivor mentality, not living in the truth of understanding true grace? That I have been rescued, that I have been sought out, that I have been loved So it brings us back. What is, what is humility? What is Peter speaking of here? He's basically saying that what we find here is that Christian humility, the humility that we are called to, it's realism that recognize, recognizes the need for God's grace, the need for God's one-way love. Is this a realistic mindset for you every day? I have to call myself to this every day. It humbles me. It doesn't make me feel less valued or less loved. It makes me feel more loved. You see, the humility of which Peter speaks is, is like that of the tax collector in Jesus' parable. It's the humility of repentance, of despairing self-trust that turns to God in saving faith. So when Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, it's not to give us fear. It's not to to put us in a place of, of cowering. But what he's telling us to do is to remember the love of God and remember that it is his grace that raises you up. It is his grace that gives you strength. And we need to align ourselves on this footing constantly, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see, we find strength from God through our humility to him. And in doing so, Peter urges us to cast our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. It needs to start, that understanding of what Peter says, that he cares for you, it needs to start with the first the first and basic understanding that he has cared for us in Christ, that he has brought us out of death, he has made us alive when we did not deserve it. And what Peter is saying here, he's drawing from Psalm 55, verse 22, where it says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. And what's interesting is that the psalmist, the, the, the psalmist's anxieties of this particular psalm, they have arisen from attacks of false friends and just slander. 
And I'm sure the, the psalmist's feeling that everything is crumbling around them. The, the, the truth and reality of what they know is, is shifting, is changing, and they are, it's out of control for them. How appropriate that is for us today. You see, Peter is calling for humility in situations of hostility, betrayal, and persecution. And how easy it is for us in such situations to be tempted to react in pride, perhaps even feel the need to draw the sword as Peter did in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, this pride to take matters into our own hands and to fight the fight that we're not called to fight, it dispels the Lord. It is prideful. As believers in Christ, we can trust the power of the Lord for his hand is mighty. We can trust the faithfulness of the Lord for our cares are his concerns. And let God do his work. See, what's happening here, it's, it's this understanding of what Peter is calling us to. It's whittling away our desire for control. Wow. Is that a conviction for me? If there's anybody who desires control, it's this guy. And when I sense it's, it's, it's kind of on shaky firm, our foundation, things aren't going the way I want it to go, the things I can do, the ways I can sin, the ways I can hurt others, but in more importantly, the way I'm rebelling against God and not submitting myself to his mighty hand. So what are examples of this for you today? Well, can I give you some of my examples? The temptation to get on Facebook and like... Do you type like that? Maybe you're a quiet typer, but you're thinking, oh, I'm going to show them, and then all of a sudden you're like typing away, right? Social media. You know, wanting to have the last word, wanting to, to have this assurance that we're on the right side of history, wanting to have the, the right words for people when we know the arguments are going to come. We tend to take matters into our own hands. It's not what God calls us to do. What's amazing about this command is that the very act of casting our cares upon the Lord, it often it changes our cares. When we cast our cares on the Lord, we often find that they were concerns of our pride, not the cares of his kingdom. So here's the picture for us. For you, for me, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let God do the fighting for you. He cares for you that so that you can be strengthened to do the good work he's called you to do. We go back to what Peter says in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What is the good Peter speaking of? In verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. You see, God is, is calling us in this passage, in this book, that Peter has, this letter that Peter has written to us, to, to entrust 
ourselves to him. There is work to do. There is work to do that we are called to. So let's not lose sight of what that is. To be doing good. To be suffering for righteous sake. For the name of Christ. And count it as good. So to sum up, we stand firm by humbling ourselves before God. Humbling. It starts with humbling ourselves. But Peter goes on to say in verse 8, he, he says, he starts to let us understand what it is we are to do. Where does our fight reside? Okay? Understand, Peter's not saying stop fighting. He's, he's encouraging us to fight, but what he's doing is he's aiming the direction of our fight. And you see, if we're not careful, if we are not casting our cares on the Lord, what is typically happening? We are being governed by our anxieties, by our worries, by our pride, and we get off track. Like I said before, our deepest needs define our deepest beliefs. And if we're not submitting that under, under the Lord, under the word of God, we are going to get off track. And we run the risk of deceiving ourselves as to, as to who our true enemy is. You see, all the things we see going on today, all the problems, all the people causing the problems, Peter steers us away from those distractions and focuses our mind on who our true adversary is. It's the devil. Think about this for a second. Even in Peter's context, there are many adversaries Can I remind us that that Peter has some cred here? He's living and has lived context and has experience to speak the truth he is speaking. It has weight to it. He's not unaware of what is taking place around him. He's not unaware of the injustices that he could be pointing to. He's not unaware of the persecution that is taking place in those who are persecuting the church. He's not unaware of this. Is he telling the church to focus on that and direct the fight toward that? No. He's, he's calling the church to focus on and do battle with really what are the two great enemies of all humankind, and that is our sin and the devil. Keep in mind, this is not a call to focus on so-and-so's sin and what they're doing wrong. It's a call to focus on our own hearts before the Lord humbling ourselves before God. Remember what Peter said, humble yourselves. John Piper puts it like this. He says, the two great enemies of our souls are sin and Satan. And sin is the worst enemy because the only way that Satan can destroy us is by getting us to sin and keeping us from repenting. You know, as much as our secular culture, you know, points us away from the existence of God? Do you ever stop to think of how much it also points us away against, away from the existence of Satan against evil? We have to look at these things as both. Peter refers to Satan like a lion. He roars. He hunts. Not only does he hunt by stealth, but he hunts by terror. But the reality that we have to remember is that he could ask, he could not ask for a better cover, a better cover than the illusion that he does not exist. You see, 
remember the example that we have in Christ. Remember the example that, that Jesus came to expose as well as destroy the works of Satan. He confronted him. This comes into view when, he temp- when Satan tempts Jesus in the, de- in the desert. As Jesus begins his ministry, Satan attacks Jesus with, a, with, with respect to both his calling as Messiah and his identity as the Son of God. We see him subtly in the skill in which he quotes Scripture, calling on Jesus to test God's promise. And what does Jesus do? He repulses the attack. He repulses the attack through the authority of God's word, and he defeats him. What I think we're having to keep a mind, our minds on is that we too must confront and we must do the spiritual battle that Peter is calling us to. We are to stand on the truth found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, we have to remember that the enemy that we are called to fight, the enemy, the devil himself, he has already been defeated. He may be this roaring lion. He may be showing his teeth. He may be calling, causing fear. And yes, we see suffering around us. We see death around us. We see persecution around us. But we must remember that he has been defeated. This lion that Peter refers to, he is, he is a tethered lion. He is under the sovereignty of God. He is under the hand of God. The mighty hand that we are called to humble ourselves under and trust in. You see, we do spiritual battle by resisting the onslaught of accusation and temptation the devil will throw our way. And I want us to hear the danger, the danger that I believe that, that for us, that Peter is warning us against. It's not that we are helpless before the devil. The danger for the Christian is that we will fail to resist that we will not watch and pray, that we will not put on the whole armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit. John Piper also says this, the way to thwart the devil is to strengthen the very thing he is trying trying most to destroy, your faith. Our faith is strengthened through the word of God. The sword, the word of God, was the very weapon Jesus used in his ordeal in the desert. It is ours to use in his name. Remember that roaring Satan, like I said before, he's a tethered lion. He cannot tempt us beyond what we can endure, for God will not permit it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will, not let you be detempt- he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way to escape that you may be able to endure it. We are not helpless. We are called to resist. We are called to fight. We are called to be watchful. We are called to be sober-minded. 
truly, if Satan is to be resisted, sober watchfulness is what's called for. And this goes back to what I was saying before. If our cares, if our priorities, if we are not orienting ourselves properly under the truth and, and, and humbling ourselves under God, what do we do? We get into this survivor mentality. We're taking matters into our own hands. And dare I say it, that's where Satan wants us to be, away from God's word, away from the, the very thing that strengthens our faith, and ultimately sinning and falling away and falling away. Again, we see Peter calling us to do something that he failed to do, he, what he failed to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, to watch and to pray. He's speaking from experience. He understands the need to be watchful and praying and resisting temptation. It is our call to stand firm in our faith. Remaining faithful in the midst of suffering while doing good for the sake of the gospel is is what Peter keeps calling us to do. Peter also says, and he's implying here, that our faith is, is strengthened through us suffering together. In, in verse 9, resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is referring to the church. The persecution that is experienced by the church is what we share, and the suffering that the church experiences is what we share in together. And while Peter's exhortation here, it's, it's encouragement that points us to the larger church, I just want to take some opportunity to encourage us here why it's so important for us to be in community together. When we are in community together, when we are connected together, we, we know when we experience that there is encouragement in knowing that we are not alone, we are not isolated as we suffer, as we walk the walk of faith, as we deal with the temptations that come our way. It's so easy to be isolated in what we are dealing with and think that there is no way out. And so what do we do? We survive. We take matters into our own hands, and usually we're making it worse rather rather than doing this in community with one another. We need the strength of one another. We are also reminded that as we are in community that we are, we are we are in a bond, the same bond that unites us to Christ in our suffering, it also unites us to one another. We share in these things together. We are reminded that suffering is inherent to the Christian faith, and that suffering has its place for a world destined for justice, peace, and glory. I need this encouragement constantly because I am weak, I'm weary. And I need my fellow brother, my fellow sister in Christ to encourage me, to remind me that this suffering that we experience has a purpose. It has, it has a perfect plan that is under the sovereignty of God. So knowing this together, it stimulates hope. It provides hope and it helps us to press on. That's why we're in this process of of trying to discern the the ways that we can continue to gather in the season that we're in. What Paul, uh, our pastor Paul, called us to of of pursuing community with one another. We want to know how to best do this. I know there's limitations. I know that there's, there's things that are inhibiting this. 
but I'll tell you what encouraged me as I've looked through so far the, 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 the results of the survey of just how many of you responded, how many of you were faithful, but also the work of God that is very clear and evident through the, the survey results of how there is connection, how there is encouragement, how there is a desire to continue to move forward as a church. And so I want to say thank you for being engaged, but know that we have work to do as leadership to, to discern and to pray through ways that we continue to call ourselves together, but also how we care for one another. Care for those who are suffering. Care for those who have not been here to gather because they can't, because they are, their health pre- prevents it. They're, they're, in, they're in a category of being in the vulnerable population. We have to remember that there are people here who want to be here, but they can't be here. So we need to be serving them. So finally, we stand firm by believing God's promises. Believing God's promises. Peter closes his letter as he began it. He's rejoicing in the grace of God in Christ. The hope that will sustain the church through its fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. He's reminding us and pointing us back to this again. And I love how Peter says this. He says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, I love that. doesn't say simply you'll be restored, you'll be confirmed, strengthened, established. It says a promise that he himself, God himself, God himself is active to confirm, to restore, to strengthen, and to establish. We need to keep in mind and have the hope and the reality that as we humble ourselves, as we face persecution, as, as we lose things in this world because of our humility, because of the call that God calls us to, the promise to us is whatever we lose in this life, he is going to, he is going to establish it, reestablish it. He's going to strengthen us, and we are going to get what he has in store for us and the blessing of what he desires. This is the God that we serve. So as we wrap up, think upon these promises that God will restore us. We are not to assume that God's restoration of us will take place after our time of suffering is over. God is restoring us now. He's restoring you now in the midst of your suffering. He's restoring me now in the midst of my suffering. There is a refinement taking place. So that on the last day, when, 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 when Jesus himself is glorified, everything that you're going through, everything that I'm going through, all the injustice that has, that has taken place in this world, those who have stood firm in their faith, we glorify God through the testimony of following and staying the course. And all of the world sees that we are restored because of God. God will confirm us. God confirms our faith in Christ to be true through the firm foundation he has placed us on. We'll be confirmed through the establishing grace at work in us. God will strengthen us because God is sovereign and rules over all. We have nothing to fear. 
No matter how loudly and ferociously Satan the roaring lion is, the risen Christ removes our fear because Satan is defeated. The eternal battle has already been won. We have nothing to fear because God is the one who strengthens us. And finally, God will establish us. We are made strong in the sense of being given a firm and fixed foundation. Jesus, when he predicted Peter's denial, promised also his restoration. I've been fascinated as I've gone through preparing for this sermon. The, the, I mean, Peter himself, every word that he is writing and he's encouraging us to, he has walked not only the failure, but he has also experienced the restoration of Christ firsthand, face to face. In Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus says this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter is predicting, predicting that, I'm sorry, Jesus is predicting that Peter is going to deny him. And I've always focused on that part of it, that, that Peter was going to deny. But in the prediction and what Jesus was prophesying, he was prophesying that he would be restored. He's saying this in the very same breath when he speaks to Peter. So Peter, who had fallen away in denial, was made, we have to remember this, he was made an apostle, a rock of foundation, fixed and solid. Peter himself promises to Christ's church the same establishing grace he himself has received. He himself has received. So the words we read here are from a man who has walked this path. And so how does Peter end? He ends by worshiping. Overwhelmed by the promise of God's triumphant grace, the Apostle Peter can only worship where he says to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that is my desire for us today, that we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are casting our cares upon him. We are resisting temptation. We are resisting evil. We are doing so so that we can do the good work and fight the fight of faith so that God can be glorified, so that God's name and Jesus' name will be upheld, so that, so that God is glorified. See, Peter is not wishing. He's not even praying this. He's not praying that God's power may endure. He's rejoicing in it. That is what this praise consists of, rejoicing in what already has been done and what he already has. So the power to accomplish the wonder of God's will will be forever his, just as it is for you and as it is for me. So let's stand firm together in this. Let's pray.